when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. Bit of news for you all. Thank you very much to you guys, the listeners. We've had happy news from, I don't know if you remember, about, about a year ago now maybe a bit less, we talked about the Iron Age coins, the pre-Roman coins found in the New Forest. And I went to my local museum, we did some live stream, we did some podcasting, all about these extraordinary Iron Age coins, the hoard found, which predated the arrival of those Romans. Well, thanks to that podcast, thanks to your generosity and mobilisation, the museum has been able to meet the funding requirements to keep those coins in the area. They've kind of added to their gallery and they have been able to secure those coins found in the New Forest, and they will now be preserved and shared and curated and displayed right here in the New Forest. So huge thank you to everybody listening. On this podcast, we're talking about something completely... Actually, no, we're not, it's not that different. We're talking about the great broad sweep of history. We are going back to the prehistoric, and we're coming right the way forward to the present. We're talking about African and Caribbean people in Britain. We're talking about their presence here on these shores long before the 20th century, and people assume the sort of rise of multicultural Britain began. The oldest complete human skeleton ever found in Britain, so-called Cheddar Man, who lived around 9,000 years ago. Cheddar Man had dark skin. And when the Romans arrived 2,000 years ago, they brought with them many men and women of African origin. The story of Africans and then West Indians in British history is a fascinating one. And I've got a person who's a key part of that story. He's Professor Hakim Adi. He's at the University of Chichester. He's the first historian of African heritage to become a professor of history in Britain. It's fantastic to have him on the podcast. He has just written a book called African and Caribbean People in Britain. And he's a founder and consultant of the group Young Historians Project, which you can check out on social media and elsewhere. And that's a group of young historians of African and Caribbean heritage working today in Britain. So please go and check those out. Hakim and I chatted about the history of Africans and Britain. It's fascinating stuff. Enjoy. Hakim, thank you very much for coming on the pod. You're welcome anytime. Were Africans here before blonde-haired, blue-eyed Anglo-Saxons and Norsemen? In a word, yes. How so? Tell me. Africans were here in Roman times, that is before the Angles, Saxons, Dukes and so on, and probably Africans were here even before the Romans, but certainly Africans were here in Roman times. We even had an African emperor, Septimius Severus, who was Libyan. We had an African governor, 
Quintus Lollicus Urbicus, who came from what is today Algeria. So these African Romans brought with them part of their army, who were Africans, again, mainly from North Africa. But then we know that there were others here, other African Romans, we can call them, or Africans. Probably the most well-known is the woman known as Ivory Bangle Lady, who was buried in York, which was a very important Roman city. She was another African. There are several. There are several. I mean, what we know about them is that they had a range of statuses, a range of occupations. There were men, there were women, there were children who were African, who were here in Roman times. So centuries before the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes. The other things about the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes is that they're less important in the kind of ancestry of modern Britons than was previously thought. You probably need to go back to Cheddar Man 10,000 years ago to look at the kind of real ancestors of the British. And as you probably know, Cheddar Man was a dark-skinned gentleman, and probably everybody in Britain was dark-skinned 10,000 years ago. Even the Daily Telegraph said the first Britons were black. So if the Daily Telegraph says it, who am I to argue? I don't want to get bogged down in the Roman period, but do you think the Romans, did they care about skin pigmentation less than subsequent cultures and societies in our history? I would say probably yes, to use a generalisation. I mean, we have to remember that the way that we think about these issues of so-called race, and particularly racism, is very much a kind of modern phenomenon, and it arises out of our modern history. That's to say the history of the last 500 or 600 years or so. And it's connected with the relationship between Europe and Africa, Britain and Africa after the 16th century, and particularly in later centuries when there was a relationship of inequality, Millions of Africans were enslaved and trafficked around the world and so on. And modern racism developed to explain and justify that relationship. So, of course, in Roman times and earlier times, that relationship between Europe and Africa didn't exist. In fact, when Europeans first went to Africa in later centuries, the end of the 15th century, they went to Africa because they thought that Africans were probably wealthy, had things which Europe didn't have. And also Southern Europeans, the Spanish, the Portuguese, had seven or 800 years' experience of being ruled by people, many of whom were Africans. So I think Europeans in general thought about Africa in different ways centuries ago. And you mentioned Africans probably being in Britain before the Romans. It's hard for us to know, but I'm really interested by sort of coming forward to the late medieval, even early modern, the nature of our maritime communities. And we know that before Julius Caesar arrived here, there were Greek Iberians. People were sailing up to Britain. Southern England was part of a kind of trading system of the Atlantic coast, stretching down to what is now Morocco and North Africa and things. Do you think that the nature of that sailing and trading relationship means there would have been an African presence in Southern England. And we see that evidence, don't we? Is an African the Mary Rose? There is an African connected with the salvage of the Mary Rose, the diver. Oh, yes, the diver, of course, yeah. Tell me about him. Well, <laughs> he was a diver from Northwest Africa, one of many 
Africans, hundreds of Africans who were here in Tudor times. He had an important occupation, but he was one of just hundreds of other Africans who were here who had interesting and significant occupations during that period. Some of them were skilled, as he was. Some of them were needle makers or basket makers or musicians or a variety of occupations. So I think that, again, we are often presented with a very limited picture of Britain's history, which excludes people. There's no reason to exclude, you know, a few hundred people, whether it's Jack Francis, who was the diver, or others. These were just a part of British history and should be recognised. And British history is all the poorer for having these exclusions and hiding those who were here and who made a contribution to the history of this country, just as anybody else did. And I think there was some DNA evidence, wasn't there, that some of the Mary Rose crew might have had uh, North African heritage as well. So Yeah, very likely. I mean, Africans sailed with... Francis Drake, and it's common. There's Africans featured prominently in depictions of the Battle of Trafalgar as well aboard HMS Victory. Indeed, and Trafalgar Square has an African. If you look at Nelson's column very carefully and the plaques at the bottom, you'll see an African pictured there. Why are we even talking about this? Like, what not it obvious? I mean, Africa's reasonably close in global terms, and we understand trading in, and slavery in all its guises through history. Why do we still need to have this conversation about there having been people of colour in Britain? Because people have been excluded from this history and are still excluded from this history. And this history is presented as if some people didn't exist. Not just Africans. Sometimes history is presented as if women didn't exist or as if others didn't exist. But If you grow up in a country which presents a history which excludes you, that is definitely problematic. And it's not just problematic for those who are excluded, it's problematic for everybody because we then have a distorted view of the world. And when we study history, we study history not just to understand the past, but to understand the world in which we live. If we have a distorted picture of that world, That, we could say, is a very damaging, possibly even dangerous thing. So we want to understand the world in its entirety. And history gives us that possibility. So it is very important to present things as they were, as they are. And that, I say, enables us to understand the world in which we live. And you could say not only understand it, but act in it and even change it for the better, hopefully. What about the Stuart period? There are some people at court in this period that are of African origin. There are certainly Africans here during the Tudor and Stuart period. Probably the most famous, again, not Stuart period, but the Tudor period would probably be John Blank, the royal trumpeter, who was in the Tudor period rather than in the Stuart period. So he's probably the most well-known because we have an illustration of him in the Westminster tournament role of the 1511 or whatever it was. So he has become very well-known for that reason. In the Stuart period, less well-known. Of course, that was the period when England's involvement in human trafficking, the human trafficking of Africans, became much more significant. And so as a result of the trafficking of Africans across the Atlantic to the Caribbean, also to North America, we find there are more Africans arriving in 
the British Isles during that period. And so we could say that Africans become more a factor in the kind of life of Britain during that period. And in order to find some sort of acceptance of that gigantic trade in human beings across the Atlantic, is that the process of othering Africans, questioning their personhood in that process that you mentioned earlier? Yes, because there is a debate, you could say, about the the justness, not the legality as such, but the justness, the ethics of enslaving other human beings. And then we find from that period people questioning, how is it these other human beings are being enslaved because aren't we all God's creatures? And so then you get a whole series of arguments presented, well, these Africans are not human beings. They're not the same as us Europeans, we English. They are different. They're different types of being. They're either lesser human beings or they're not human beings at all. So that development of what we could call modern racism arises out of that contestation, if you like, between the anti-racists of the periods and the racists of the period. And the racists of the period are clearly those who are attempting to defend the indefensible, the human trafficking of African men, women and children. I suppose what's interesting or significant about all of that is that some of the leading philosophers of the day, the John Locks, the David Humes, are those who present the views of the racists who deny the the humanity of Africans during that period. But there are many others, or significant others, who took a contrary view and defended the humanity of Africans throughout that period. So anti-racism is as much a feature of British history as racism is a feature of British history. And many of the leading anti-racists were themselves people of African origin who we've tended to, again, ignore slightly. Yes, people like Alado Equiano, Otobal Kuguano, Ignatius Sancho, others who, some of them were active campaigners. Again, we're talking about a later period, the 18th century now. But there were many Africans who were active campaigners and anti-racists and abolitionists in the sense that they took action to liberate themselves, because we have to remember that African slavery, if you like, was a feature of the British Isles. People were enslaved in Britain, not just in the Caribbean and North America. So people were brought here and enslaved as enslaved people. So then they had to liberate themselves. And so throughout the 18th century, late 17th century, we see newspaper adverts, other forms of adverts showing that people were liberating themselves, demanding that they should be returned to their owners and so on and so forth. So those people are also active campaigners. But then you have people like Alado Equiano, who was a writer, who published a best-selling autobiography, Autobiography again, Ignatius Sancho, another famous writer, who defended the humanity of Africans, who presented their life stories or their writing to show they had the same feelings, the same emotions, the same everything as Europeans and therefore sought to undermine the the racism of the day and also presented the case for abolition. They're also important because they're part of a a kind of mass campaign which has almost been written out of British history. And in the 18th century, the anti 
slavery movement is probably still the biggest political movement in Britain's history, but nobody ever talks about it. It involved millions of people signing petitions, boycotting sugar in their tea and coffee and so on and so forth. It's a very, very important campaign. And these guys and others were all part of that, that struggle in the late 18th century. You listen to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about Africans and Caribbean people in Britain. More coming up. How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? And it's very interesting to think about why it's Caesar in particular when there have been many political assassinations in the past millennia, why Caesar's has been the one that is brought up again and again. Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? In the Jurassic, you see dinosaurs get bigger and you see meat-eating dinosaurs grow into things like the size of buses. And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? She is always derided as this sort of terrible adulteress, but at least as old as Homer, at least the 8th century BCE, is a counter-tradition in which Helen doesn't go to Troy. She's never Helen of Troy, she's Helen of Egypt. Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores, and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Speaking of the struggling late 18th century, it's one of my favourite ways to rile up Americans. You said the American Revolution was the largest emancipatory event in American history before the 1860s because all the enslaved people that could get to British lines were freed and lots and lots of enslaved people found their freedom via the British forces in that war and ended up in place at Halifax and then Liverpool as well. And many of those formerly enslaved people would have ended up in actually living in Britain, wouldn't they, in the late 18th? Many of them would have lived in Britain. There wasn't, of course, an attempt to send them back to Africa. Many of them ended up in Sierra Leone where Unfortunately, many died, but they were part of the creation, paradoxically, if you like, of Britain's first colony in Africa, because Sierra Leone was created as a colony in 1806-1807. And so if one looks at history today and the state of Sierra Leone today, it's kind of intriguing that it was a, a British colony for over 200 years, but remains one of the world's poorest countries. I'm not sure what the connection between the two is, but there you go. What about black Britons in the 19th century? Well, again, there are a whole variety of people to choose from. There were large numbers of people here who were impoverished on the kind of margins of society, beggars, unemployed people who were forced to engage in various acts of criminality to survive and so on. Then there were significant numbers of seafarers, of sailors, both in the royal and the merchant fleets, many soldiers. And of course, in this period, 18th century and early 19th century, it was quite fashionable to have African musicians, drummers and others, But also there were African soldiers. You mentioned Trafalgar, but nearly every major naval battle and land battle throughout the 19th century, there were Africans involved. And then, of course, you have people like Mary Seacole, who came to Britain from Jamaica and then served in the Crimea as a a nurse and doctress and has become much celebrated recently and, again, was slightly ignored for much of the 20th century. Then there are others. There are people who came from the Caribbean and could have been quite wealthy. There are people who came to Britain to study, students from Africa, the Caribbean. There were, of course, many people who came from North America during that period, some as just to seek a livelihood, some as abolitionists campaigning for the rights of African-Americans, people like Frederick Douglass, Linda Brent and others. Then there were people who were adopted by the royal family, like uh, Sarah Forbes Bonetta, who was essentially the goddaughter of Queen Victoria, Prince Alimayu, who was an Ethiopian prince who was also adopted or kidnapped, depending on how you want to look at it, by Queen Victoria. There's a whole 
variety of people. And of course, in the the 19th century, we, we probably have the beginnings of distinct, we can say, black or African communities in places like Liverpool, Cardiff, London, developing. So the 19th century is very, very interesting. It's a period when historians used to believe that there were hardly anybody here of African and Caribbean heritage, but actually there are all kinds of people, including famous, or perhaps not so famous, people like William Cuffey, who was one of the leaders of the Chartists. So there are people too numerous to mention during the 19th century. So how do we end up with this myth about the Windrush? And particularly because actually on the Windrush, you and I will have met many people that were on that original first generation and they all talk about the fact many of them were actually in Britain during the Second World War and the Windrush was an act of returning in some ways but so why do we end up with this idea that suddenly a group of West Indian people men and women were introduced into Britain and it was the beginning of a somehow a kind of multicultural era? Certainly in the last 40 or 50 years that is the way in which this history has been presented that everything started with the Windrush in 1948. But as you say, it, it is a bit of a myth because, of course, there were ships that came to Britain from the Caribbean in the post-war period before the Windrush. Perhaps more significantly, there were ships that came from Africa to Britain in the post-war period that brought significant numbers of people from Africa as well. So the Windrush wasn't the first ship. It wasn't even the beginnings of the kind of really mass migration from the Caribbean, which took place in the 1950s. And as we've discussed, Africans have been in Britain for thousands of years before the Windrush. So it is a bit of a, a myth, which in my view, which has sort of been concocted and has now taken over, I suppose, like many historical myths. What we do have with the Windrush is, of course, a nice film. We have everything presented to us. We have a calypso, we have Lord Kitchener singing, we have everything there. So it's a kind of handy package of images, of music and everything, which is allegedly a turning point in Britain's history, but it's just not the case. And I think it's, of course, if people wish to celebrate the arrival of a particular ship, that's fine. But when it's presented as a way of understanding this history, I think then it's rather misleading. Where are we today? Is the traditional pattern of immigration to Britain from former colonies and Commonwealth states, is that now being replaced by people coming from different places and, and communities across Africa? Like, what's happening now? It's a little bit different. I think we tend to think of Black Britons, if I can use that expression, as mainly coming from the Caribbean and mainly arriving in this period during the 1950s and 1960s. In fact, that's not the case anymore. The sort of majority black population is now African, from continental Africa. Most people will have come from, or their families will have originated from those former colonies, Commonwealth countries connected with Britain, like Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Kenya, and so on. Those are the biggest African descended populations of the country. But in the recent period, in the 21st century, we also have significant numbers of people who one could think of as coming from the Francophone world, people from the Congo, places like Cape Verde, a whole range of different places. So it has changed a little bit 
as I say, it's now mainly African and the, the range of African countries from which people have come from has widened a little bit. But you still find lots of people of Nigerian heritage, lots of people of Ghanaian heritage are here in Britain. What's the direction of travel historically at the moment, do you think? Are we overcoming the legacy of the trade and enslaved humans across the Atlantic? Are we moving back to a more Roman view of skin pigmentation? I would say that a struggle is going on as to whether that's the case. Certainly it's a different place to how Britain was 30 or 40 years ago. That's certainly the case. But I think things like the Windrush scandal, which is really about issues of citizenship and who is really considered a citizen of this country and who isn't and how they're treated. I think that's a very good example to show that these kinds of problems of racism and so on still persist. And I think also in the the comments very often of leading politicians, you still find the kind of racism that would have existed 100 years ago in some of the things that they say. Then again, if we look at events such as Black Lives Matter, which is what only two years ago, which is a kind of outpouring of anti-racism from Land's End to John O'Groats, you kind of get the idea of how people in general feel, I would say. So I think people in general are get it, our understanding of these things, are opposed to racism, want a society in which everybody can flourish and so on. But I think that the powers that be are not yet in that place. Yeah, it's interesting. The British Social Attitude Survey, I think it's the figure of people, even in my, in amazingly in my lifetime, which is very short, of course, <laughs> who object to interracial marriage, have gone from very significant majorities of the public to an insignificant fraction. One would hope that means something. Yeah, I mean, interracial marriage, so-called, is quite interesting because it's always been a feature of British life. As far as you go back, certainly to Tudor times, for example, marriages between Africans and English people were taking place. And throughout centuries, there have always been those people who've tut-tutted and said, isn't this shocking? But it's always been a feature of British life. And if one looks at the longest established communities in Britain, such as those in Liverpool and Cardiff, that was a feature of those communities, that usually African and Caribbean men came to this country and then married, lived with, cohabited with English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh women. It's always been a feature of British life. And it's interesting that the surveys have now caught up with what's been going on for centuries and reflect that. It may be that public opinion was always not very much concerned about it. Certainly some people were concerned about it, but maybe generally people weren't. Hakim, thank you very much for coming on and talking to me all about this. Tell me what your book is called. My book is called African and Caribbean People in Britain, A History. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's published by Alan Lane Penguin. Good luck with it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.